0: Uh, this is Jeff Simon. I'm the executive director of the Western Dakota Energy Association.
1: Thank you very much for joining us today. A couple of reasons to have him on the program. One is to talk about some of the things affecting oil and gas. We just had a legislative session in North Dakota wrap up and a couple things came out of there of interest. And then there's that state of Washington ban of uh, not ban, but just some new regulations that might turn into a ban, I guess, And then also, um, you were just down in a conference in, in I believe it was Oklahoma, so let's start off with that a little bit. I took a look at the itinerary. Actually, I knew about a half a dozen people that were down at that conference. In fact, I'm interviewing an attorney from Norman, Oklahoma. She does a lot of water issues, and you know this. uh, Boy, water is one of the most underreported, under under-talked-about and I don't want to use the word issue because I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill here, but it doesn't take too many tea leaves to see that water is one of the big important issues going on in the oil patch right now. Would you agree with that or disagree? Just I guess we'll start off, uh, comments on water and then down to the conference. How's that?
0: Okay, yeah, well... <laughs> You know what they always say, water's for drinking, and, and uh, or whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting, I think is the old line. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but, uh, water was a big issue this past session. The uh, the Water Commission budget is nearly a billion dollars, and that's going to fund water projects and as well as flood control projects in North Dakota, both of which are, are a really big deal here. Um, you know, uh, produced water is uh, was kind of a, a, an issue as part of the, uh, the pore space legislation that came out of this past session that... Uh, that kind of can turn, turn into a sort of a sleeper issue. It didn't, not too many people saw that one coming. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, what it amounts to is a, a Supreme Court decision in 2017 took into consideration legislation that was passed in 2009 that dealt with, actually it was contemplating, you know, the idea of carbon sequestration, the whole CO2 storage idea. And it uh, took a look at that in the context of uh, oil and, and uh you know, produced water, wastewater disposal wells, and potentially pulled into play the prospect of requiring oil companies to compensate uh, landowners for oil that is uh, discharged or injected, reinjected back into the same unit from which it's produced, which, you know, it's a long t- long-standing kind of common law sort of thing that companies are allowed to do that. They, they do have to pay for surface disturbance, but not for the uh, you know the use of the space underground to inject the water, that that was resolved. So,
1: how about down at that conference down in Oklahoma? Um, I noticed there were a few Bakken presenters specifically from North Dakota. Um, I just a few two or three off the top of my head. Uh, did did the Bakken and North, North Dakota have a pretty good presence down there at that conference that you attended in Nor- in uh, Norman, Oklahoma? I O G C. What, what was the the yes. whole? Yeah,
0: the, uh, state oil and gas compact commission. It's basically the national association of state oil and gas regulators, and it was actually it was in downtown Oklahoma City, is where it was uh, where it was happening at. That's um,
1: it. Sorry about that. Not Norman, Oklahoma. Oklahoma City. But, okay.
0: You know the the main public program re- really kind of kicks off with something that's kind of cool. It's a it's a roundtable where um, they, each of the uh, regulators from the states and provinces. There were I believe five provinces from Canada uh, presented as well there. Um, they all get six minutes, you know, to kind of give a rundown of, uh, what's going on in their state. And, uh, obviously Lynn Helms, our guy here from North Dakota, the department of mineral resources was there and talked about, you know, what we got going on in North Dakota. I mean, we're, uh, kind of boom times right now, 1.4 million barrels a day, 2.7 BCS of gas a day, um. You know, and and they all talked about, you know, kind of the state of their industry. A lot of them are looking at uh, abandoned wells. Um, It was really remarkable. I I think probably a third of the the presenters talked about these abandoned wells that uh, a lot of times they they just don't have a handle on where any of them are. Um, I believe it was the state of Ohio they actually found one underneath a school. No kidding. There was kind of a methane seat going into the school, and it was actually, the school had been built over an abandoned gas oil. well.
1: Well, I, I was talking to a guy who was down at the conference, and he told me about another gentleman who, in, the, in this Ohio thing where they're using this $27,000 drone, basically, uh, plus to go find these abandoned wells so did yeah. was was there a lot of talk about the drones and uh, the or uas uav whatever the you know correct terminology is but north dakota of course being one of six test states helping set the rules and regulations surveillance oil and gas being one of those was that mentioned down there at all kind of some of the drone talk
0: absolutely okay. yeah that's a big part of the technology you know that's really kind of uh, you know, what the, a lot of the states are trying to do is just to get a handle on it right now. I think North Dakota pretty much knows where they are. I mean, the drilling just started here in the 1950s, so, uh, you know, they have a pretty good handle on it, but some of these other states, I mean, these are these are pre-turn-of-the-century, and I'm talking the 1800s to 1900s turn-of-the-century wells that have been there for more than 100 years, uh, but, you know, if they haven't been, you know, properly plugged, they're, they're a hazard, and a lot of these states are Still trying to get a handle on that. It's kind of remarkable.
1: I saw that um, EERC, (laughs) the Energy Environment Research Center, was represented down at the conference, too. What were they talking about?
0: Yeah, well, Jay Almley was there. It was Jay, okay. Jay uh, Jay leads the project uh, called IPIPE, Integrated Pipeline uh, Technology. I can't recall exactly the acronym. But it's uh, it's using technology to identify and to prevent... um, possible leaks pipeline leaks that's really the target of it you know it's this kind of shark tank sort of uh, project where they look at some of the best ideas and then fund them through the oil and gas research council here in partnership with I think they have eight different industry partners now looking at ways to um, you know to prevent pipeline leaks to you know I mean pipelines are ninety nine point nine 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 something like that percent safe but there's you know there's always an issue so they're looking at uh, technology and ways to do that it's a it's a really a fantastic project and they've uh, they've got some you know promising prospects to, you know, to to identify these leaks before they happen looking at pipe integrity and and uh, some things like that they've got golf ball size probes they can actually you know their sensors that go through the pipe and then when they bring them out they're full of data that can uh, be interpreted to uh, you know to identify potential hazards they're using satellites uh, there's a company called Satellites. Uh, it's it's really quite fascinating, and it's a growing project. It's a multi-year project, so it's gonna it's gonna go on for a little while longer.
1: Anything about big data going on? Because a lot of the stuff that you were talking about, of course, leads to big data. Big data, however you want to describe it, that's been a term in the industry for about five years. It's um, mm-hmm. It's growing, you know, and and you know how how it goes. That stuff's exponential. So all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we just might start hearing about it as the new normal. Is just that sort of thing. Much like how the UAS UAV talk has been going. You know, pr- pretty soon we're going to be able to pinpoint specific you know blight on a potato plant, and a little remote sensored real time robot will go out and perfume mist the potato blight, and that that that'll save a small fortune on pesticides and everything else uh how, how advanced is the big data talk i guess was there any of that talk down there just from what you were saying just i was going oh well there's layering in big data right now
0: yeah yeah they really are yeah you know. a lot of the companies talked about their it efforts and modernizing their databases some of them are using you know relatively old technology um, and um, they're looking uh the, the regulators are looking at you you know, I think um, a lot of your listeners, Jason, are probably familiar with the FRAC Focus website where, you know, they, they kind of built a clearinghouse on hydro, hydraulic fracturing technology and and disposal and all sorts of information. Well, the, the oil and gas regulators are looking at building a database of kind of best regulatory practices to, to kind of get a handle on this, what they're doing in terms of using technology and, and uh, analyzing data to, uh, to spot trends, perhaps, and you know uh, uh it's it's all fascinating technology is you know we all know it's growing exponentially and it's it's a continuing challenge to kind of keep a handle on
1: it but it's definitely a definitely a talk among uh the industry regulators well for me it's it's the validation of and you know this cuz you were around back in the day of when the John Gibsons of One Oaks and the Harold Hams and the James Volkers of, uh, of um, Whiting would make an, you know regular appearances out to the Bakken and, and talk about the paradigm shift happening in oil and gas. This was back in 2014, probably, maybe 2013, where they were openly just saying, this is a paradigm shift that's going on. And this big data, big data is part of that. Because what you're talking about now is next year or the year after, all of a sudden, at the click of a button, you're going to have all this regulation data just, at the, like I said, at the click of a button that you're going to make these decisions in real time for people. It's going to be amazing over yep. the next two, three oh. years what's going to happen in oil. I don't think people understand the industry is just in the infant stages right now. <laughs> well,
0: true, and, and that, that especially, I think, p- applies to completion technology. Totally,
1: absolutely.
0: <laughs> some major, major changes, I mean, just in the past uh, two, three years here. Uh, you know, there are there are wells, and uh, granted, it's good geology in North Dakota that they're dealing with, but there are companies that are bringing on wells that are, that are uh, unbelievably bringing 10,000 barrels per day of initial production. It's well, just an astonishing amount of oil that's coming out of, you know, y- you maybe have heard about that in an offshore well, but uh, for an onshore well to produce 10,000 barrels a day is remarkable. But it's just how far they've come with, you know completion technology and hydraulic fracturing it's more precise they know you know where the formation is they stay in the heart of that formation um and you know it's just it's just amazing they're talking about you know right now um getting between recovery rates of 15 to 20 percent and you know when eor comes down the road enhanced oil recovery in a decade or two or i mean it's in the it's in the development phase now but you know uh there's a day when we're going to get a whole lot more of the oil out of those formations. So we're the industry is going to last here in North Dakota for many decades to come.
1: I know a few years ago I used to run ads with my, my son talking about how, you know, it's a first-generation company. My son's going to take over because that's how long the Bakken shale play is going to be. And, you know, he goes to industry events. He was at the Williston Basin Conference a couple years ago. He goes to Bakken barbecue every year with me. He goes to all these public... Uh, oil and gas events is getting to know the people and he's only 13 now. And yeah, yeah, and the reason for that is I truly believe that these interviews and this program and this brand and everything is going to be all part of the next 30 to 40 years because that's how long the the industry is going to be with what we know with the current technology. Now, when we start integrating in what's going on up in the ERC and the Bakken, with say some of the technology they have going down in Midland, Texas, where they're trying to take the natural gas as being flared down there and turn it into a way to make water to irrigate the desert. Can you imagine once that technology gets figured out and another shale place can integrate it in? That's what I love is that like what what the Bakken is doing is eventually going to end up in other shale place. That's kind of the idea, right? Is that well,
0: you know, yeah, yeah. You know, the, uh, yeah, the technology just—I mean—it just continues to advance. Who knows? Who knows what's coming down the road? But you know, for the for the uh, uh, the keep it in the ground crowd, I think you know they're they're sort of in denial if they think we're going to be um, you know somehow abandoning the use of, of oil anytime in the next uh, in the near future. Um, you know, there's just no no substitute for the energy density that you can get out of a, a barrel of oil. I mean, you think about imagine trying to. Fly a, a heavy cargo plane, or or move a locomotive on electricity. It just isn't going to happen. You need that density of that fuel right now, and there just is no alternative being developed. So that's why I say the industry is going to be around for many decades to come. I think your son's grandchildren will still be using oil. So,
1: uh, well, I I agree. I mean, at, at the very least, it'll it'll be a ve- it'll be a dominant niche. In fact, I don't even think it'll be a niche in the next hundred years. We're so far from Getting off oil and gas because it's just so much a part of our life in yeah. so many different ways—from transportation to construction to, geez, even even our currency is yeah, is, is very much plastic-based. You know, but you
0: know, and speaking of plastic, yeah, that's the the other thing that people don't uh, often think about—that a big portion of that barrel of crude oil is turned into products that we use every day, plastics and uh, you know various forms of nylon and uh, all kinds of different synthetic type. Uh, well you would think they're synthetic but they're not they're they're made from organic
1: material you're going to get a kick out of it you know we're of course non-political whenever we talk a little politics it's generally after something has been done and we bring on somebody like yourself who tracks this stuff on a day-to-day basis and it's there's enough programs out there that cover the day-to-day so we want to just find out what happened and then how to process it and move on so we don't cover a lot of the political stuff in terms of that you know, day-to-day type thing. But the one thing that we do believe, and this is not a political statement, it's a fact, that the religion of environmentalism has gotten so extreme that they're out there in crazy land. And, and I actually, I'm not trying to be bombastic or sensational, I just, my, my evidence is this, and, and you'll get a kick out of this, because you know how hard we try not to be political here, so this is going to sound political, is you have two presidential candidates, legitimate presidential candidates. Now, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are considered legitimate presidential candidates within the Democratic Party. Now, whether they're Democrats are legitimate or not, that's a whole different argument. But for, for argument's sake, you have two presidential candidates that are talking about in their platform we want to ban drilling that isn't an actual insane comment to me that 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 is like the guy with the merlin head that runs for president every year talking about dragon legislation that's the same exact thing that i can't believe the media would actually give bernie sanders and elizabeth warren a platform after they come out and publicly say I'm going to ban oil and gas. Now, I, I get it's fun to be involved in politics and everything else, but I got to ask you, Mr. Jeff Sivan, is, is, is that a crazy statement to say I'm going to ban oil and gas?
0: Well, I don't, I don't know if it's crazy. It's pretty darn stupid, but, um, you know, I, the idea, I think Bernie Sanders has said, yeah, he wants to ban hydraulic fracking. Well, a president can't ban. That would have to be an act of Congress that would do that in the first place. So it's, it's sort of outlandish to begin with. But, I mean, you consider the alternative here. I mean, we, uh, I, I, I don't think you'll find anyone that will argue that oil isn't essential to our modern society. There is just absolutely no way modern society can function without oil. It provides 96 percent of our transportation needs in forms of jet fuel, diesel fuel, gasoline. Um, so what's your alternative to that 96% right now? You can, you've got a few electric cars on the road. So, I mean, here's the choice. You can you can get your oil from domestic production, or you can have it come in in a tanker from Saudi Arabia, and then, well, then you can fight foreign wars and continue to worry about stability, instability in the Middle East, things like that. That's really the choice here. I, you know, I think that's that's the difference we've seen between the Trump administration and the Obama years is that you know, Trump has really unleashed domestic production in this country to the point where, I mean, we're literally energy independent here. We don't have to worry about what goes on in Saudi Arabia or Venezuela or another of these countries where we have been dependent on oil. Uh, That's the real political question that needs to be, you know, that's the the political reality of this thing.
1: Well, and for me, this is where we're going with it. We actually, at The Crude Life, we have a Thing this summer coming out called the the, the Earth's Champion that we, I actually believe, and I'm not kidding, I, I believe this, the real champions of the Earth right now is the oil and gas industry. They're, they're the only ones that are truly trying to invest in technology to continue the way of life and make the planet greener. Um, I, I think that the environmentalists have gone so far extreme – much like you know, there's a lot of right right side people too that have gotten extreme too. So I mean, it's just it's it's kind of a balance, if you will, to where they're they're no they're, they're no longer even trying to get rid of plastic bags anymore. It's just all right, get rid of drilling. It's just like they're not even worried yeah. about a compromise anymore, and that scares me that you've got two presidential candidates that can just feel confident enough to make. You know, sure, crazy might be a bit strong, but outlandish, I think, would be more of an accurate term. Um, uh, Unrealistic is definitely it. It'd be the walking dead without zombies in three days. And, you know, but when you look at what's going on in Colorado and now with the state of Washington, there is, to me, there is some concern within the environmental movement to where they're getting a lot more foothold, to where I think the oil and gas industry really needs to, do a job of promoting right now because they are legitimately really trying to save the planet whereas other people are pointing fingers mostly that's just from what I've seen over the last probably seven years covering this industry on a day-to-day basis you're pretty involved with that Um, do you think I'm going off the deep end or have I got something to it there
0: you are right on target. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you, just, uh, you know, we mentioned that oil and gas conference. Lynn Helms, uh, our uh, industry regulator here in North Dakota, used the term consumer states, you know, and it was in the context of what we'd mentioned at the outset of the interview here about the Washington state legislation. You know, really, I mean, the the consumer states, um, particularly those on the West Coast, they have a choice here. You know, and, and it was pointed out in the, in the uh, debate over that legislation out there that, the, the legislation we're, in, we're talking about would, um, it wouldn't, as you say, necessarily ban crude oil imports by rail, but it could potentially curtail them if they were to ramp up in the future. But the, the choice really for Washington State, again, there is do you want this crude from domestic sources where it's creating American jobs and people are paying American taxes, or do you want it to come in through Puget Sound on, a, on an oil tanker from the Middle East? I mean, that's that's really the choice there. And, uh, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders, you can get your oil from Saudi Arabia if you want, but I'll take American crude.
1: Well, not only that, but you, you've seen this firsthand because you, you live out there. And, you know, for me, I grew up on the eastern side of North Dakota, Fargo, you know, Minneapolis I was born in, but spent most of my time in North Dakota. That's why I went out to the Bakken and lived out there for a year, so I could embed myself in the industry and figure out the day-to-day how it works and it only took me about three seconds to realize the oil and gas industry is about the last essence of capitalism truly alive in today's economy they, they don't get a lot of subsidies unfortunately farming you, you do and so it's 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 a little bit hard to say that whereas oil and gas pay their fair share in taxes and then some They also give their fair share of donations to the nonprofits and then some. And they still seem to have money left over for the t-ball team, the local church event, and a lot of other things that they get hit up for. And so to me... It just seems like they're the last bastion of capitalism. And that's what actually drew me to the whole industry. And to see that still alive out there is just, is it's so amazing. And I think that gets underreported too. I, I really do. And I, I think people need to be more aware of that. And you're out there on a day-to-day basis. Do, do you see that still happening out there?
0: Oh, there's enormous amounts of capital invested. I mean, the industry is investing literally millions and millions of dollars a day. Lynn Helms had a figure here earlier, uh, i think to date i would say you know the industry has invested something between by now probably between 130 and 150 billion dollars in north dakota i mean that's putting capital at risk nowadays you know it's a little bit more predictable it's not it's not so much exploratory as it is actually just production because they know the oil's there and they know how to get it out of the ground but i mean it makes such an enormous contribution to the economy of uh, not just north dakota but the, the you know the entire country we have extremely affordable energy, you know gasoline is you know, most places now somewhere between 250 and three bucks a gallon. That, that's just incredible that we, we can produce a, a useful commodity like that for that price. But then consider the tax revenue. I mean, at, at today's uh, production and uh, today's price accrued, in uh, North Dakota, the oil industry is probably going to pay in a single year, about three billion dollars in taxes so um, you know to say it isn't important um, and that it's not making a huge contribution to the American way of life would be very disingenuous and to, to get the you know to the idea that you would want to eliminate that that's uh, you know that is kind of crazy Jason
1: Well that's where I, that's where I'm going because really if, if you dig deep into this thing to where okay let's ban, well, in Colorado, the governor came out and called it the "war on oil and gas." He said the "war on oil and gas" is the term he used. That scared me because that means that it's you know there, there there's a what's the word I'm looking for organization. There's an organizational effort being handed here. And then when I see what's going on in the state of Washington, and then yeah, you know these consumer states. Yeah, that's a that's a very good term for it. That is a very good term for it. And. Um, my, my concern is, though, that I don't think they understand the way that the economy works. And you remember, I think you were at the Petroleum Council's annual meeting when Stephen Moore was there from, sure. uh, from he's an economist, he's a, a regular on Fox uh, yep. as, as, an, as a correspondent. But he had a slide up during his presentation where it showed that the mining industry, the oil and gas industry, the only one that's had a net gain of jobs over the last 10 years so all the technology talk, all the farming investment, all the uh, millennial investment, everything did not have a net gain of jobs at the end of 10 years. It was only the mining industry. It was because of the oil and gas hydraulic f- fracturing movement. That's, that said a lot to me. You know that That meant that in a big body of work, the oil and gas industry has been carrying a lot of cafes and, and, and t-shirt shops and you know what I mean by that all those quality yeah. of life type of uh, well, businesses so go, go ahead go ahead
0: well those I mean those dollars uh, recirculate in our economy I mean that's that's the, the kind of the message by by making energy affordable um, people have more disposable income for all the other life's pleasures it's you know uh, I was uh, I, I one of my my uh, uh, avocations, I guess you might call it, is I, I spent a little time on Twitter kind of trolling the environmentalists out there, Ooh. you know, <laughs> it's it's kind of fun with, you, you know, just to kind of make fun of them, because they're just so, um, you know, so out of touch with what's really going on out there, and, you know, to, to point out the fallacy of, of their argument that, you know, somehow we're going to live without this, are you kidding me? I mean, consider, you know, where you're going to be without gasoline and, and I mean it, it, the people leading those consumer states you know if they if they're going to step up and stop using gasoline and and uh, diesel and jet fuel well, you know then I'll maybe start listening to them but you know until they do that I mean they're just they're just being hypocrites
1: that's a, one of the things that we're doing this summer is with the earth's champion um we're going to be promoting and educating more of educating that, you know, like what you said, that the today's environmentalist has changed. They've changed. Okay, Ed Begley, Ed Begley Jr. can come on our program any day of the week. Ed Begley Jr. drives around in a methane garbage-powered car. That guy's walking the walk, talking the talk. When yeah. I went out to the Dapple protesters, the person tried to serve me a Keurig coffee cup. Ex- oh uh, exactly. Ex- I left the interview. No, thank you. Absolutely not. We have experts on this program. We don't have hypocrites. And so that really opened my eyes to the modern day protester. And then you saw, of course, the um, the garbage that was left behind at the DAPL protest. That was awful, absolutely awful.
0: A million dollar
1: cleanup. M- million dollar, exactly. And and it was and it was garbage. It it was not compositable, You know, like uh, plastic pl- or I'm sorry, cardboard drinking straws. No, these were plastic you know, things they picked up at the grocery store. And, then, you know, these were convenient plastic things like it a Keurig coffee, you know? And so-
0: It wasn't quite a super fun site, but it was a big mess. That's for
1: yeah, sure. and and not only that, but then you start looking at like electric cars, you know? Most of the electric cars are powered by coal. And so if you're driving around in an electric car talking about how great you're treating the environment and then you're turning around and demonizing coal, well, you better take the mirrors down in your house- and, yeah, the, well, and then, yeah, and then you know that. And then, like, you take a look at an iPhone. Okay, if electric, you're... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry.
0: I was going to say, an electric car, you got to talk about lithium mining and copper mining and everything else that goes into an electric car, too. And and
1: that's where I was going with the iPhone, was that the, the today's protester does like what you do. They go around and they troll people, right? Except for what they're doing is nothing to help the solution to the planet's problems. They're drinking Keurig coffee. iPhones take 28 rare minerals okay, I'm sorry, elements, 28 rare elements. And that's what we're talking about the batteries and the electric cars. And so the people on the oil and gas side and the innovation side, they're not the ones pointing fingers at the people that are actually trying to solve the problems. It's the ones who that are talking about the environmental movement as this great way of life. Those are the ones who are actually causing more problems than solutions in my eye. Now it, it, I believe I have a lot of evidence, so that's why I'm saying this is not a political statement from the crude life's point of view. This is a fact. And we're yeah. going to go out and we're going to educate that fact this summer in a very fun way. And, you know, we'd love your help because you know exactly what we're talking about. Exactly. <laughs> so, well, go ahead. Know, I
0: mean, the, the fact is, Jason, the, the evidence is there in science. You know, it's science and economics. I mean, it, 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 that's the, the, the downfall of the environmental organizations. I think the the science, so-called science that they use, has been so vastly corrupted. It's, you know, the whole climate groupthink thing thing is just, it's just unbelievable now that there are people out there that think carbon dioxide is causing hurricanes. It's just, I mean, it's utter nonsense. But, you know, scientists are dependent on government revenue. You know, the, the, you know, the science that that promote that level of activism are are dependent on it. And you kind of You can't cut through that mentality. These people are not looking at real, objective science. They're not considering rational economics when you talk about energy and where you're going to get it and how it's produced and its net contribution to the society. We need to get back to those fundamentals of good science, good economics.
1: Well, and common sense seems to help too. You know, I mean, you know, there, there was a time where the oil and gas industry and the environmentalists were working together. I mean, you you don't have to dig too deep into an oil and gas company to see that they have renewable energy departments and they have in you know research and development because they understand that, you know, that they they want to make money too and there's a demand out there and but when you start looking at the state of Texas, I don't know if they got into this much down at the conference you're at or you've been following, but all those McMansions down there that put up solar panels in the last 3 years that they, they've been trying to track, none of them made money. None of them. They all costed them money. So all they did was subsidize themselves to, to you know, look trendy and be kind of cool. And they, and they openly admit it now. That's that, all that was was nice hubcaps on their car because it did nothing for their energy bill.
0: Well, you know what, we have to, what, what I think society has to recognize is that we have a, we have a, a clean environment in the United States because we can afford it. You know if if you don't have a prosperous economy you can't afford to do the research that's going to lead to that breakthrough you can't mandate some sort of technological breakthrough by by banning what we have now it just isn't it doesn't make sense we we just need to support ongoing research if we're gonna have these breakthrough technologies and in North Dakota our folks we devote a lot to research we've got a lignite research council oil gas research council And a lot of research goes on at the universities in the Valley over there, Grand Forks and and Fargo, North Dakota State and UND. They're doing all sorts of research into energy and looking for better ways to do things and agriculture too, for that matter.
1: Brought up a good point that I should bring on a buddy of mine who's been traveling to China the last 20 years. And that's what he talks about. He goes, you'd be amazed at how much that country has cleaned up. He goes, when I first went there, you couldn't even walk across a bridge because the rivers smelled like raw sewage. And, you know, some of the, areas in the city were just so polluted with with smoke and that sort of stuff. Well, they they've we've sold them our intellectual property, we've consulted, we've gone over and the nice thing is is that we are helping different countries clean up their 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 deal. There's a great uh, a number of books out there that talk about the ethical argument for oil and gas that really just talks about bringing third world countries out of the third world. And quite honestly, if you look at it from that perspective, you don't need to dig much deeper than that. <laughs>
0: I mean, well, just in the just in the past thirty years, uh, you know the, the the portion of the global population that's in you know dire poverty has dropped uh, from it was about thirty percent. Now it's less than ten percent. You know, a lot of these areas have been electrified, and it's largely attributable to the development of fossil fuels in those countries. I mean, but um, it, you know, the only way you're ever going to clean up is if you can, if you can afford to do it. I mean, you have to have affordable energy, and these other these other sources just aren't aren't going to deliver that if you don't. I mean, you look at a at a you know a third world country. They look at the environment in terms of consumables and flammables. What can I what can i harvest and what can i burn to keep warm that's you know uh, modern society doesn't do that we look at ways to uh, use fossil resources efficiently effectively cleanly and uh, you know everyone benefits from that
1: jeff simon western dakota energy association on the line with us wrapping up here as we concluded the 2019 legislative session in the state of North Dakota, which his organization follows very closely. They've got a weekly newsletter. Of course, you can always sign up for it. They give you a great little snapshot of weekend review of news and quick links of different things as well. Uh, talk to me about some of the uh, few things that we need to keep an eye on for the next uh, year or two until the next legislative session, some things that oil and gas uh, people need to be aware of here now in, in, the, in the Bakken.
0: Mm, well, say uh you know over the interim uh probably one of the most interesting topics to follow is going to be a study of what to do with the legacy fund earnings i mean we've got a legacy fund in north dakota from oil taxes that have been uh it was a measure on the ballot and uh we've got a permanent fund now but the earnings from that can now be spent or invested or or something with them um you know the this is the first biennium 1719 where that's available and there's a lot of a lot of ideas out there about what we should do with that, so that'll be part of an interim study. I think people will want to watch that one pretty closely. Is is yeah.
1: that the one that the uh, library is getting a lot of press with?
0: Well, that that was another thing, but um, that was the governor had proposed using legacy earnings to uh, uh, put in a, uh, a a state contribution to match private sector dollars for the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library. Yeah. As, as it turned out, the uh, the money that they put in there did not come from the legacy earnings. But okay, that project is a you know there's private fundraising effort underway, and hopefully within the next three four years we'll see that facility open uh, in uh, Theodore Roosevelt National Park just outside Medora.
1: I'm curious about that one. Um, just a little sidebar, being a native of North Dakota, of course, um, this this got a lot of traction, and and so I'm you know I'm curious to see how it's going to turn out um I, I i think it will i think it'll go through and i think it'll be a nice addition out there and you know how people are it's like it's like when dickinson put up the rec center some people were against it now they love it oh, <laughs> williston yeah. some people are against it now they love it and so <laughs> yeah. I, I think this might be a similar thing that more good will come out of it than bad i have no idea i all i know is it got a lot more press than a lot of the other stuff and Mostly, I think, because the governor was championing it. He, he, he was a big pusher behind this Theodore Roosevelt yeah, library, really, wasn't he?
0: It's an exciting project. Yeah, the governor was uh, fully behind it fact, Yeah, it his budget that, to use it. But, uh, you know, we're, we're off and rolling with it. I think, um, you know, talking about the interim, just one other topic I would mention that mm-hmm. uh, is going to be worth watching, uh, you know, for particularly those folks in the oil patch, is how we're going to pay for school construction in the West. You know, these districts, um, we've seen a transition in the workforce. You know, it was uh, as the boom took off, uh, you know, in the first five years of this decade, uh, it was a very, very transient workforce. And now things have settled down. Housing's uh, much more affordable and available. A lot of those uh, workers are bringing their families here, and they have children and lots of kids going into the schools. But it's uh, the the communities in the West are having a struggle trying to keep up with uh, classroom facilities. Uh, Williston had a failed bond issue just this week. Dickinson had a failed bond issue. Um, and, and I think part of the mentality is, you know, we see all this oil tax revenue generated, which is supposed to be in lieu of property taxes. So folks are reluctant to raise their own property taxes when all this oil tax revenue should be should be devoted to school construction.
1: That's quite a sign if both those communities rejected that school
0: bond. yeah, We've got two more coming up next week. The, uh, the rural district in Williams County outside Williston has a bond issue next week? As does uh, the Nesson School District, which is uh, the community of Ray, which is just north and east of Williston.
1: Is there any early speculation on that? I have no idea. I'm not plugged in at all out there. But the the Dickinson and the Williston one voting no speaks to me. Um, yeah. are, are the rurals primarily following suit with that, or is it just too early to tell? They're a wild card.
0: Well, it's you know, it's those districts in the core that are that are seeing. Uh, um, you know, the growth, I I really couldn't say, you know, what uh, what kind of support the, the two votes next week will have. Watford City was able to pass a bond issue uh, back in January to, to build a new elementary school, yeah. and they're going to have another bond issue coming up sometime uh, within the next few years here for oh, wow. a middle school there, because right now they're, you know, they, they've got the large uh, high school next to the Rough Rider Center there. Uh, that's one of those magnificent facilities you mentioned. But uh, they've got seventh graders at the high school now, and eventually they're going to need a middle school because the high school is going to fill up. They had 200 additional kids in the building this year in, in a very small town. That's you know, You're know you almost adding an elementary school just with that number.
1: Well, I, I can tell you right now that the state cannot give enough money to Watford City. That's, that, that town probably needs more le- legitimate support than probably most of the other communities just because of how fast they're growing.
0: That's my message, Jason. That's why the Western Dakota Energy Association exists, to make sure people understand that the communities out there are impacted by energy development. And, uh, you know, those communities support the en- energy industry. So the uh, the state of North Dakota and our legislature needs to support those communities.
1: That's the one thing I wish, I- I wish everybody on the east side would, would seriously just go out to Western North Dakota for a day or two and just spend some time out there and realize how much that side of the state contributes to the other side of the state. I I, I know that uh, it was, it was Jade Stone and Brent Boger that did the recent yeah. um, the dependency study, the tax dependency study. That that was an eye opener. It's like 50% of the revenue or budget or something. It was just an eye opener. And yeah, more, than, um,
0: more, than, more than 50% of our general revenue general fund revenue comes from oil taxes and if uh, a lot of it wasn't put into the legacy fund, that that percentage would be even higher. So huh. hey, It funds projects all over the state, water, flood control, colleges, universities. Uh, You know, the the money is distributed widely. And you can find that on our website, ndenergy.org. It's still front and center there if you want to just click on the tab and you can find where those oil tax revenues have been spent around the state.
1: Well, I think the reason why I'd like people from the east to go over there is I do think there's enough fair-minded people that when they look at how much revenue and support and et cetera comes from the west – and then they realize, you know, all you got to do is go about thirty minutes west of Fargo, Grand Forks, Wapaton, draw a straight line up and down the state, and there's sixty percent of the population. That that that's the discrepancy of the population and kind of the swaying of the political power and all that. I think would just go away if people on the east were a little bit more educated with um, how important that stuff is on the west. And I think the studies help like the one that was done this past January. And um, I, I expect you guys will be doing more of these, right? These I know NDSU does one every, I don't know, was it seven times in the last 10 years and that sort of thing. And I, I think it helps. And the industry is sticking around and it's not going anywhere like it did in the 80s. And that's going to help too. I, I do see a day where the West will be getting more money from the state. Don't you?
0: Oh, I, yeah, I, I would think so. Um, you know, we could spend a little time on another whole topic where you know we're about to head into a census i just attended a meeting uh yesterday on the 2020 census and that that is going to cause a little bit of a political shift here the districts in the west are going you know they've gained population so they're going to have a little bit larger political voice uh when the next legislative session comes around really oh yeah well
1: yeah. That, that that'll actually be a good thing for the state i really believe that
0: I mean, I, you, you, it's hard to quantify it, but I mean, you can basically assume that the city of Williston is going to have a new state senator. Um, you know, it's grown that much. Uh, Fargo's grown in the east, and uh, Grand Forks to a little lesser extent, and a lot of the eastern farming counties uh, generally have lost population, but Dickinson has grown. All the communities in the western part of the state have grown, so there well, will be
1: and, and, you, and you And you know this, being in North Dakota, people don't like to talk about some of the things if there's a problem in agriculture, especially on the east side of the state because it's all agriculture. And the dairy industry has been consolidating. The farming industry has been consolidating. It's no secret that not everybody's buying a new combine every year. Strauss in Fargo went out of business because the farmer's not buying a suit every year and the kids are wearing jeans to church. The the times have changed. And the nice thing that hasn't changed is the oil and gas industry because those people are still buying their new new trucks every year and they're still buying because they're not subsidized and they're not consolidating. They're growing and you're getting more startups. I mean, like when I think about what Kevin Black and Credence uh, Energy Services is doing out there in Minot, North Dakota, that's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. Some of the stuff they got going on out there. Do you know what I mean by that to where some of the other industries have been changing but the oil and gas industry isn't. They're still trickling that money down the way that the trickle down economy is meant to be done.
0: Well, I tell you what, um, you know, the probably the best example of that is the city of Minot, I I would say, because um, Ward County, where Minot is located, has almost no oil production. But if you look around Minot, the oil there are there are literally dozens of oil field service companies there. The industry, you know, it's not just those people that are working at the wellhead. There are dozens and dozens of different types of service industries that support the oil industry, from, you know, oil field clothing to pipes and pumps and lubricants and on up. I mean, you name it. Um, it's it's a very big uh, spin off kind of thing that you see. I mean, they're just, the industry just ripples throughout the entire economy of Western North Dakota.
1: Well, wrapping up, what should people uh, know about Western Dakota Energy Association and uh, what you guys are keeping tabs on and get that newsletter on in their in- inbox?
0: Yeah, well, you can go to our website, ndenergy.org, and sign up for the newsletter on there, or you can read the back issues there, too. You can also uh, catch up on our legislative reports. Uh, they're, they're all posted online as well. Uh, to kind of recap it for yourself but we're just going to continue looking out for the cities county school districts townships uh, that are impacted by energy development in the western part of the state that's our job